Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 2. I'm your host, Casey Tigret. I'm a pastor, author, and spiritual director. You probably won't find another person in the world like Father Albert Haas. The energy, the excitement. I wish you could have seen our conversation today because in the video, he was back and forth, leaning back in his chair, leaning forward in his chair, emphasizing points, especially in times when he was talking about something he's very passionate about, which is the idea of being an ordinary mystic. This language of mysticism goes all through the conversation about spiritual formation, but a lot of times mystic just sounds way too big and way too inaccessible for most of us. And one of the beautiful things that Father Albert does is he makes mysticism accessible. Not only accessible, he makes it into a reality for everyday people like you and me. In his book, Becoming an Ordinary Mystic, he gives practical and philosophical reasons why all of us are invited to celebrate the presence of God in the sacrament of the present moment. So my hope is this conversation will lead you not only to think about mysticism, but maybe read a bit on how you can take a step into that incredible, incredible life of mysticism as an ordinary mystic. And so, without further ado, the energetic Franciscan, Father Albert Haas. Father Albert, I have been looking forward to this for quite some time. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And you were telling me the story of where you are in uh, or the retreat center you're at in Temple, Texas. Uh, it sounds like it's a it's a historical place and also a spiritually significant place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So Cedar Break Catholic Retreat Center is in the Diocese of Austin, Texas. We're right on the dividing line between Temple, Texas and Belton, Texas. So our physical location is in Temple, Texas. And during the Civil War, this part of Texas belonged to the Confederacy. And this, this these 75 acres that the retreat house sits on um, it's called Cedar Break because basically we sit in a cedar grove of 75 acres. And this was the very cedar grove where men would come and hide in order to avoid conscription in the Confederate Army. So it started out as a place of physical refuge. And now, 154 years later, it's really become a place of spiritual refuge where people come here to encounter Christ in word and sacrament, in the liturgy, in, uh, in scripture, in silence, and in nature. And so every year we have about all together maybe between 1,500 to 2,000 people who uh, walk and pray these grounds um, every day. So it's really, it's an incredible, credible, holy place that has really been made holy by the feet and the prayers of the people who come here. Yeah. I've found retreat centers, the ones that I've been to, to be places where you've encountered something beyond myself, but also encountered guidance, uh, 
wisdom, direction, and that's those moments have been so important in in my past, in my life, well, you, in my journey. You know, Casey, in in Celtic spirituality, Celtic spirituality has those be, that belief in what they call thin places, and a thin place is that place where the separation between the sacred and the secular is really permeable, and. Celtic spirituality always says forests are, are thin places where you can encounter God and angels. And so oftentimes when I walk, the, we have a one-mile uh, trail all the way around the property. And every time I walk that, that trail, I always remind myself, this is a thin place where, where potentially you can encounter God or angels. Yeah. So in line with that, whenever I have a guest on, I always want to get their perspective on this. Um, if you were to begin coming from this place where you are, this refuge and the work that you've done over the over the years, and you had to start the definition of wisdom, where would you begin in defining that word? Well, I would always begin probably by saying wisdom always it's a grace from God that really arises from the wounds of your life. Mm. Because when you meet people, when you meet people who have never suffered any tragedy, when you meet people who have never felt the, the being abandoned by God, or when you meet people who just have always lived a very superficial life, carefree life, you don't find much wisdom there. I think wisdom is really, it is a gift, it's a grace from God that comes to us as we reflect upon the wounds and tragedies of our lives. Because if you notice, the wisest people, when I think about the wisest people I know, they're all people whose lives have been riddled with suffering. That's why somebody told me years ago, somebody said to me, Albert, never forget, talk to the dying because they will teach you how to live. And that is so true. So yeah. true. Is that a hallmark? So thinking about that, is that a hallmark of some of Franciscan tradition? Uh, is this engagement with suffering and and the realities of how difficult life really can be oh sure because francis himself francis of assisi himself his whole that the whole birth of his spirituality and the whole beginning of his spiritual formation occurs when he encounters a leper and he tells us we have a precious document called his testament and in his testament it's, it was written about a year before he died and he says in the testament when i wanted to begin living my life spiritually no one showed me what to do but the lord himself led me among the lepers and what had been bitter suddenly became sweet and so so this whole idea of of ministering to reaching out to the lepers this is this is, comes right out of the very life of francis and it really helps to shape the whole franciscan tradition and the whole franciscan approach to the spirit, uh, to spiritual formation and the spiritual life. Yeah, these traditions have become so important to me recently. 
not only from reading your work, reading from uh, the work of Father Richard Rohr, mm-hmm. and our listeners are all nodding right now because they've all read a lot of this, and also uh, interacting with the Celtic traditions that you mentioned. Uh, I was in Ireland back in March and mm-hmm. got to visit Glendalough and oh, wow. the home oh, wow. of St. Kevin and some of the just amazing things that have happened there. But when you, One of the things I love about you and your writing is how transparent you are about your own life and the challenges that flow alongside of what you're doing. And you talk about the initial reason why you, in your book, uh, Becoming an Ordinary Mystic, you talked about the one of the initial reasons why you moved towards the Franciscan tradition and tr- towards the friary. Can you talk about what it was that was motivating you to move towards that? Well, so yeah, sure. So uh, my father committed suicide when I was 13 years old. And and that really kind of formed a crack in my soul because and, – and the crack came from the fact that um, we were suddenly left penniless. My mother had been a stay-at-home mom all her life, and so now at age 42, she's got three children still at home. She's got to raise. She's got to find a job. And, and so uh, – I mean, I can, I can remember meals being very, very thin. Mom had to go to a, to a school to kind of learn a trade. Um, and, so, and so the crack in my soul as a result of dad's suicide, the crack was always this fear that I would never have enough. And so I, when I think back now on what, when I, when I felt this call to religious life and to the Catholic priesthood, and when I think back on it, I think I was attracted to the Franciscans because I knew that by joining the Franciscans, even though we take a vow of poverty, I'll always have food on the table. I'll always have a house over, I'll have roof over my head. And, uh, and so I think, I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but that was the primary motivation for joining the Franciscans. And surprisingly enough, somewhere along the line, that got converted. I, I think somewhere along the line, and I think that I see that in many people's lives that, you know, people jo- people begin to become disciples of Jesus or they enter religious life, probably for the worst of motivations. And yet somehow or another, it gets converted to somehow or another, grace begins to shape it. And so I, I've, I have yet to meet anyone, whether they be a Franciscan, a Dominican, a Jesuit, a Benedictine, a Trappist monk, I have yet to meet anyone who enters religious life uh, with the best of motivations. I mean, even when you look at the life of Thomas Merton, for instance, he was looking for a place to call home because yeah. all his life he had, he had been so uprooted. And so the monastery represented to him a place where he could land. And thankfully, that got converted because when if, you're, if your initial motivation is not converted, you usually don't last long mm-hmm. or your ministry ends up becoming all about you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I see that as well in many uh, in many of the Protestant ministers that I know that you know they will even say to me, "Well, you know, I came to ministry because I wanted to make a name for myself," and then they said, "You know, somewhere along the line, that got converted, and I began to realize it was important to preach Jesus and not myself." So yeah. it's, it happens, I think, for all of us. I love that because it, your book is all about the fact that. 
taking the word ordinary and the word mystic and bringing them together. And I'm going to talk about that language here in a second, but it, it's an open, it's a bigger and more open invitation uh, to anyone to this, to a life of mysticism. It, but I, what I love about what you just said is how often we have this preconceived notion that everyone who is a, a mystic or a saint has this you know, amazing encounter. And that's what moves them. You know, a cross on the wall speaks to them and they say, I'm giving up my father's wealth and I'm running into the wilderness naked. And for most of us, it's, it's really not that it's something far more domestic and maybe a little less holy, sacred than we might let on. Absolutely. You know, as as I mentioned, as I mentioned in the book, you know, when you look, for instance, at the life of uh, Paul on his way to Damascus, or you look at the life of Francis of Assisi as he prays before crucifix in this dilapidated church of San Damiano, when you look at these kind of, you know, these bigger than than bigger than reality experiences of God, these mystical experiences, those are just footnotes in the history of Christian spirituality. You know, my doctorate is in the history of Christian spirituality. And when you look at the, the entire scope of Christian spirituality, those are just footnotes that, that really the, the real mystics, they emerge amid the ordinary. I mean, really. That's just the way, that's the way God's grace works. Yeah. And that's, and for the congregation I work with, I work with a lot of of working class folks and people who would hear our conversation and say, well, that's good for Father Albert. That's good for people who enter uh, into a cloistered life because they're, that's their thing. But I'm, I just can't, I can't be there. I can't do that because I'm just, I haven't had this amazing mystical experience. And yet your book is about, no, actually, there is such thing as ordinary mystics, and oh, you know, they emerge. I, I even mentioned in the book how I, I, I came to a deeper appreci- appreciation of mysticism when a dear friend of mine was telling me how close she felt to God when she nursed her newborn baby. Or when I talk to my friend who's a gardener and he tells me how, you know, he just amazes, he comes so close to God as he plants his garden every year. So I, I think that's the key. And I think, unfortunately, most of us in our religious fervor, we, we, we tend to think that mysticism is all about, you know, the highfalutin experiences or the supersized thoughts that come into our lives. And yet the reality is we are always in the presence of grace and grace is always challenging us to move beyond ourselves. And that's really what mysticism is all about. It's living with that awareness, that mindfulness, that right here, right now, God is calling me. You know, I didn't put it in the book, but I always like to tell people probably the greatest uh, and I'm, this goes back to the very beginning of our of your show when you asked me about wisdom. Probably the wisest spiritual axiom can be found on your automobile. It's on your passenger side rear view mirror at the bottom. It says objects in mirror are closer than they appear. And I always tell people, scratch out the word objects and put God. God is closer than God appears. And so when you talk about spiritual formation, the spiritual life, when you talk about mysticism, it's not a question of gaining something more. And it's not about 
getting something. Mysticism and spiritual formation is simply about living with the awareness of what I already have. Because most of us, unfortunately, we go through life as sleepwalkers. We're not awake. And this is why I mentioned in the book, you know, three times in the New Testament, in the very the earliest Christian document that we have, the first Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he talks about the importance of staying awake. Jesus he tells a parable about of the importance of staying awake. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, reminds us to stay awake. And so I think the fact that the New Testament reminds us of this is just another way of saying staying awake does not happen by osmosis. We have to be dedicated to it. We have to work at it. And as we work at it, we come to see there's nothing to get in the spiritual life. It's the spiritual formation is simply a deepening of the awareness of what I already have, which is God's grace. That is so good. <laughs> that is so good. And you mentioned too one of my one of the ideas that I think is really key to that, which is the idea of the sacrament of the present moment. Uh, credited to Descartes, I think. Right. Uh, how how do you see that? How do you see the sacrament of the present moment and this idea of ordinary mysticism coming together in a way that people can grasp? Because one of the things I hear is when I when you use the word mysticism, I think for some people it creates an obstacle because for no other reason, it's their preconceived notion of what that means. Right. That it you know however you might define that or describe it. A person sees that and says, well, I either can't be a part of that or I don't want to be a part of that or it isn't what I think it is. So this idea of the sacrament of the present moment, talk about the intersection between mysticism, ordinary mysticism and that sacrament because you're, you're already going there. So let's just keep going. Okay, so, so, so in, the 18th century, in the 18th century, there was a book that was written called Abandonment to Divine Providence. It is tra- traditionally ascribed to Jean-Pierre de Cossard, the Jesuit. And if he... It, and it was written by one of the Jesuits who basically, the story goes, used his retreat notes. So he was looking at Descartes' retreat notes 110 years earlier and wrote the book. We now tend to think, as scholars, we tend to think that probably Descartes did not write the book. But that's neither here nor there. In the book, the author talks about the sacrament of the present moment. And, and he uses the word sacrament in the Catholic way. The Catholic, the Catholic understanding of a sacrament is this is a unique encounter with God. That's what a sacrament is, a unique encounter with God. So it's kind of it's kind of shocking when the author of Abandonment to Divine Providence calls the present moment a sacrament that right here, right now, right here, right now, I am in the presence of God. You know, I had Catholic education all my life. And I remember the nuns used to always say, Deus ubique est. God is everywhere. God is everywhere. And that's true. That's true. And so God is right here in this present moment. And then in in, in chapter 10 of abandonment to divine providence the the author really shows us why the present moment is a sacrament because he says to us every moment we live through is an ambassador that declares the will of god so if i want to know what is god's will for me right now 
I've got to live in a present moment, and this present moment will tell me exactly what God wants me to do. And so, for instance, yeah, so it's not a question of choosing between the past, the present, and the future. It's all about living in the present and letting the present moment tell me what I must do. So if the present moment tells me that I need to look over my past life and, and, and maybe make an examination of conscience of how I have been living out my discipleship, well, then I live in the past. Or if the present moment is saying to me, I need to think about going to the grocery store and, and, and shopping for food for next week, and I need to plan out next week's menu, well, then I live in the future. So it's not a question of choosing past, present, or future. It's about living in this present moment because it's right here where God will manifest God's will for me, right here. And that's why it's a sacrament. And that's why when you talk about ordinary mysticism, the challenge of ordinary mysticism is getting back to this present moment because most of us either live in the past, that's what we call guilt, or we live in the future. That's what we call worry and anxiety and it's interesting that so much of jesus's ministry is about getting us back into the present so he will free people from their past sins or he will say to us in the gospel of matthew chapter 6 he will say look at the birds of the air they don't worry they don't spin and yet your father takes care of them so jesus is trying to get us back into the present moment and when you think about when you think about guilt worry and anxiety what becomes evidently clear is that these are learned behaviors you look at a newborn baby a newborn baby doesn't know guilt a newborn baby doesn't know worry and anxiety all a newborn baby knows is the present moment. She sees something funny, she laughs. He wants to poop, he poops. They live in the present moment. And it's as we grow up, we learn to be worried. We, the the, the, the six-year-old kid comes home from school and her, his mother says, you just wait till your father comes home. You're in big trouble. And the little boy learns worry. Or the little girl overhears her mother and father talking. And, and she hears one, one parent say to the other, I don't think we have enough money this month to make bill, to cover our bills. And the little girl learns to worry and be anxious. And isn't it interesting? Jesus challenges us in the gospel. Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we have all of this unlearning to do to come back to the sacrament of the present moment, because this is where it's at. So what do you notice? Uh, because the book is, and, and as people are listening to this, I want them to know, your book is incredibly practical. So it isn't uh, just a compendium of really wise thoughts, which there are a lot of those, but there is a very incisive, practical way of looking at our lives and examination of conscience. There's a, a, a really strong push towards that. When you talk to people, either in retreatants or when you're having uh, talks about this, what is what is the the significant, the most significant obstacle you see to someone entering into that kind of life, that kind of living in the present moment? taking in that sacrament, 
understanding God's presence in in the present. What is the thing that most often hinders us from getting to that point? Well, you know, Casey, I happen to believe that the biggest obstacle in spiritual formation, and I think the biggest challenge in the spiritual life is to have a healthy image of God. That is the most critical piece in any person's spiritual life because most of us believe in a God that Jesus himself would not recognize. And so, so, so how often do I encounter people whose whole spiritual formation is based upon guilt because they're so afraid that God is this avenging God? You know, or so many people, their their spiritual formation, their spiritual lives is based upon a God, you know, who's a nitpicker or he's a policeman or, he, or somebody that I have to kind of cajole in order to get what I want. And that's why I spent a whole chapter. I have a whole chapter in the book, Becoming an Ordinary Mystic, focused on how to have a healthy image of God, or what I call a Jesus-inspired image of God. Because I really think of all of all the aspects of spiritual formation, the most critical piece is having a healthy image of God. And that is something that we always have to work at. Because again, I'm going to use the word, it doesn't happen by osmosis because we're all products of our childhood and it's based upon our childhood. It's our childhood that really helps to build the, the graven image of the God we worship. And we have to sooner or later smash that image so that the reality of the God that Jesus revealed to us can be more manifest in our lives. Hmm. I'm so glad to hear you say that. It's always glad. It's always good for me when I hear somebody say something that I've been saying for a long time because it means it means I'm not crazy. <laughs> it's not just me on an island. It no, is that I, significant I really issue. It's so, it's so, I mean, even, you know, it, you find it interesting because I'll, I'll oftentimes tell people, tell retreatants who come to see the Great Catholic Retreat that I will say to them, listen behind the words of your priest when he preaches and tell me what kind of God does he believe in? Hmm. Because all of us in our preaching, in your preaching, just by the words we use and the images we, we project says a lot about the God we believe in. Hmm. There is an interesting move uh, in this in the book, and that I think is really important, and I, I will lead people in this direction as well, is this idea of an examination of conscience. The, the living in the present moment also means a, an appreciation of where we are in and that present moment from. and where yeah. we've come from. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you talk a bit about... Uh, the, there's a, I hear a, not a tension, but I hear a push and pull in what you're saying in the book, because you talk about, and I'd love to hear you talk more about this, because I think it's fascinating. You talk about the three emotions that fuel ordinary mystics. You talk about surprise, wonder, and awe. Is there, what does that look like to, to recognize that? Why are those the emotions that really drive the ordinary mystic? Because they take the they take the floodlights off the self and off the ego. 
when you live a life of wonder and awe, all of a sudden you're looking out and you're not looking within. And that's one of the big challenges in spiritual formation is trying to get the attention off myself. You know, how many times do we, and we do this all the time, how many times do you and I, we look in the mirror and we ask ourselves, am I growing in the spiritual life? Am I becoming a better disciple of Jesus? So we're always kind of taking another look at ourselves. And so the real challenge is to break that mirror and to begin to look out the window because we are surrounded by the presence of God and God comes to us in the most ordinary of ways. And so this is why I think wonder and awe are so important in the gasoline of the mystic's automobile because this is how we get our, the attention off of ourselves and this is how we come to the deeper awareness that we are surrounded by God's grace that there's nothing to get and, and this is like you know I, I I love to tell people whenever I'm on the radio I always tell people listen to your life because as I mentioned in the book your life is the megaphone through which God will speak to you God will speak to you to the people who come into your life. God will speak to you in the situations you find yourself in, in your deepest feelings, and in your most creative thoughts. And so when you come to that awareness, all of a sudden you will find your life increasing with wonder and awe. Because all of a sudden now your life becomes the worthy megaphone that God uses not only to speak to yourself, but also to speak to others. It is the it is the tension of um, we do get caught up in, in the world of spiritual formation. One of the one of the criticisms or critiques I've heard is that it be, it can become a form of hyper individualism. Yeah, that it's just about and even the songs that we've sang in in Protestant tradition over the years, me and Jesus. A walk in the garden, just us together, and and it leaves behind some of those community aspects. But it also is that the spiritual life begins with the individual. So it's a move that we make to turn our attention. It's still an individual posture we take to turn our attention towards wonder and awe and turn it off of ourself. But it's also the individual action, and you you bring this up. There are four different places, different self places that we have to attend to, and be aware of. So you talk about self concern, self image, self gratification, and self preservation. Yeah, the four ego concerns, the obsessions of the ego. Yeah, and so for an ordinary mystic, for someone who's listening to this, and wants to step into that stream how do they begin to interact with those four ego moves the gratification and self-concern and self-image and self-preservation where would they begin to sort of unpack that and start to take it apart a bit so so what i what i do in the book is i i talk about how the four ego concerns of self-concern self-image self-gratification and self-preservation they, they are, the ego begins to establish them based upon our childhood because what you lack in your childhood or what you think you lacked in your childhood in the adult becomes the obsession. So, for instance, with me, because of, of dad's suicide when I was 13 years old, and I, I to, to this day, I'm constantly battling this idea do I have enough? Is there enough for me to live on? So it's this idea of self-preservation. So 
we need to reflect on our childhood to, to, to come to the awareness of what ego obsessions are operating in my life because those four ego obsessions really are the software that, that, that that's kind of motivating us and then once you can name the ego the ego obsession or the ego obsessions that are working in your life this is where jesus comes in handy i have a whole chapter in the book called jesus the electrician because it's it is in the sermon on the mount especially the beatitudes that jesus is trying to rewire our thinking and if we allow him so for for those of us who think that we need to have money in order to be happy jesus says no blessed are the poor for people who think that in order they have to always be in control and they, they, so so they become obsessed with power jesus says wait a minute blessed are the meek for those of us who always want to feel good jesus says no blessed are they who mourn who don't feel good so jesus is really trying to rewire our thinking you know saint paul tells us saint paul says be transformed by the renewal of your mind put on the mind of christ and so i think this is what jesus does in matthew 5 6 and 7 in the beatitudes and in the sermon on the mount he is basically giving us a direct challenge to the ego with its four obsessions of self-concern self-image self-preservation and self-gratification and this is really what mysticism is all about it's just kind of working and trying to get that mind of christ working in the sign in, in the synapses of my brain you link uh, i loved what you did too where you link the seven deadly sins back around to the ego moves yeah it's it forms what i what i saw when i read that was it forms a very it seems like it forms a very helpful practice for someone to begin to because what the way i think about this as a pastor and spiritual director is to always say this is a big idea where do you where is the entry point for a person who says i want to start to i want to start to deal with the uh the ego where what is the practice or what is the first step where i begin so i think meditating on the seven deadly sins and connecting there is one are there other practices you see as helpful for a person yeah. to as I, as I mentioned in the book, there is. It's not just meditating on the seven deadly sins, but to do this, and that is to, to look at your life, to look at my life, and to reflect what are the typical sins I always get stuck in. Because for all of us, we all have what I like to call, what I call in the book, the default sins. These are the sins we always commit. And I used to ask myself, why is it do I keep committing this sin and if you can just reflect upon that sin and then ask yourself how could this possibly be related to my childhood and i have a practical exercise in a book to do that because once you can name once you can name the crack in your soul from your childhood that causes you to commit the same sin, then you can really know which of the four ego obsessions are really operating in your life. And that just to, to come to the awareness of that is the beginning of freedom.
I think that's the important thing to remember because I think so oftentimes people get discouraged. People get discouraged by their sinfulness and they don't know why they commit it. And it's because we live on autopilot. But when we really get serious about taking a look at our lives and reflecting on our lives and reflecting on how we are all products of our childhood, we then get to see what's the ego obsession working? What's the sin? And then it's with that that we can then move beyond it by responding to Jesus's invitation in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. But it's all about awareness. It's all, that's why, you know, when somebody comes to me and they're, they're riddled with guilt and they say, oh, Father, you know, I'm so self-centered and I'm, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm so self-centered, I'm so, I'm so greedy. I always say, well, this is great. This is the beginning of wisdom. The awareness of this, because most of us aren't even aware of it. So in the U.S., and I've got some folks who listen who are not in the U.S., and that's okay. But in the U.S. right now, we our, our culture is pretty divided uh, politically, um, somewhat in the, I would say, racially still divided. Very much so. Uh, what is the what do you see as the gift that an ordinary mystic could give to a culture that is that is pretty fractured right now? Well, I have a special word for it that I use in my book, and I call it Jesus's cardiac spirituality. It's a spirituality of surrender and service. And naturally, and I think as, as we grow in our discipleship, which, which really is growing in our mysticism, because as I mentioned in the book, every disciple, the, 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 the journey of every disciple is a journey into mysticism. And as we grow in our discipleship and as we begin to adapt and accept Jesus's challenge to love what I call cardiac spirituality, as we learn to accept that surrender, that sacrifice, and that service, then I think things begin to change. As you say, our, our culture is so fractured that it's, I mean, I have never, in my 64 years of life, I never remember life being like it is now, where, where even the, the meanest, cruelest thing is now just taken for granted. Yeah. So that cardiac kind of spirituality, that a cardiac way of living from the center, from, from a heart that is poised and directed towards this ordinary mysticism. What, what does that look like? What's the fruit? What is the fruit of a life like that for a, a community or an individual? What, what are the things that they would look for as flowing out of their life as they tap into this, this flow one, stream? One thing and one thing alone. And I, I, I mentioned it about, six or seven different times in the book, the highest form of mystical prayer is simply to pray, thy will be done. And prayer and action come together in that simple prayer. The very prayer that Jesus himself prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, yours be done. 
And I think, and I think that is really, that is the sign of the mystic. The sign of the mystic is not that they have the highfalutin prayer life. The sign of the mystic is a life spilled in love. You know, go, go back to that wonderful image that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2 when he quotes what is probably one of the earliest baptismal hymns of the church. And he says, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself. It's that Greek word kenosis and that really is the symbol and the sign of the ordinary mystic and that gets played out in a in a practical way in that prayer thy will be done or as i mentioned the three signs of cardiac spirituality which are surrender service and or oh my, my i'm having a senior moment sacrifice sacrifice surrender and service and that's really what cardiac spirituality is. You know, I contrast that, that cardiac understanding of cardiac spirituality in the book. I contrast that with the spirituality of the Pharisees, you know, who were all intent with the best of intentions. They were intent on obedience. But obedience is simply cosmetic. It doesn't change the heart. And this is why Jesus sometimes will actually break one of the commandments to show us that spirituality is not about this cosmetic spirituality of the Pharisees. It's about this cardiac spirituality. It's about responding to the sacrament of the present moment. Whatever this ambassador is asking of me in this right here, right now. And so I think the sign of the ordinary and mystic is as we grow into that wonderful prayer of Jesus Thy will be done. Hmm. But that's easier said than done. I of course, <laughs> of course. That's a big, big to-do list for today. So for you as the author of this, uh, I always feel like a book is the compilation of someone's life. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of sweat and tears and, and action poured into what you've written uh, behind it. Is, do you feel like there's something that you're being invited to in the present moment? Oh, I think, oh, I mean, <laughs> you know, both, both as a writer and as a preacher, whenever I write and whenever I preach, I'm always writing and preaching to myself. <laughs> because even at age 64, I don't have all of this stuff down pat, you know? And, and so, it, and sometimes I find that, you know, I've been writing around these issues in my book, Coming Home to Your True Self, Leaving the Emptiness of False Attraction, in my book on the Lord's Prayer, Living the Lord's Prayer, in my book, This Sacred Moment. I've been writing around these topics for a long, long time, but they all of a sudden gelled in a new, unique way when I wrote Becoming an Ordinary Mystic. And it, it, it's kind of like, for me, I kind of look, look at the book as a compendium of spiritual formation uh, that that's both easy and at the same time kind of challenging well i'm glad that you uh i'm glad that it all came together this book is a gift and i think people who read it and especially take seriously the call to be ordinary mystics i think they're going to see something amazing happen in their lives so thank you so much for your work and your life that's been poured into the pages it's 
it's been incredibly beneficial to me and I know it will be to other people. Thanks so much, Casey. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Father Albert Haas is a preacher, teacher, and spiritual director. He's a former missionary to mainland China for over 11 years. He's the award-winning author of 10 books and popular spirituality and the presenter on five best-selling DVDs. He holds a PhD in historical theology from Fordham University and an MDiv from Catholic Theological Union. He's currently serving as chaplain of Cedar Break Retreat Center near Austin, Texas. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope that you are thinking of ways that you can take this invitation to become an ordinary mystic. If you're listening on my website, thanks for streaming this. If you're listening via iTunes, thanks for doing that as well. I would ask that you would rate or review the podcast. It helps people know that we exist and find us in their feed. So until we meet again, friends, be well, live wisely. Peace.